Father in heaven, we thank you that you are king and you are savior. Come this morning, Lord, and awaken in our minds, in our hearts, the reality that our joy is found not in a circumstance, but in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ. We need your spirit to illuminate this to us afresh. So, Lord, please come now and make this reality glisten in our hearts for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I absolutely love the sky. I love it. I cannot get enough of it. I know, being a photographer, that one of the clear signs that you are an amateur is you take 100 pictures of the same thing, and I don't care. I just keep shooting straight burst mode, pointed to the sky, can't stop, won't stop. I love taking pictures of the night sky, of the sky in general, because there's, there's few things that elicit worship and awe in my soul like the sky. You might be able to relate with that. And the reality is, there's a good reason for this. This is not an accident. And the reason is this. The sky is speaking to us. The sky is speaking to us. In fact, the sky is actually shouting at us in a very literal way. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims its majesty. Day to day pours out speech. Night and tonight reveals knowledge. It reveals knowledge. Now this is true, of course, but in the early 20th century, the night revealed knowledge in a way that sent shockwaves through science. You see, the conventional wisdom at that time was that the universe was just this eternal, static thing. It was just static, always had been, and since it was that way, it conveniently had no need of a creator because it just, it just was. This was the conventional wisdom in science. Well, right about that time, there was a young man named Albert Einstein who was coming onto the scene as a player in the scientific world, and he was developing what's called his general theory of relativity. And for us lay folks, it's pretty much this model for describing how gravity interacts with uh, space and, and time. Uh, where is Jamie? Thank you for saying it in words that I can understand. I had to call her last night, and that's not a joke, um, to make sure I understood it. Well, he was working out this theory, and something fascinating happened. When the numbers came back, it revealed that the universe was actually either contracting or expanding. It revealed that the universe was actually dynamic. Well, this was unacceptable to Einstein because of his preconceived philosophy of the universe. So he quite literally inserted into his equation an arbitrary number that the sole purpose was to counteract the expansion of the universe. Einstein did this. Look it up. It's called the cosmological constant. He said, this finding is unacceptable. Insert arbitrary number. After all this technical research he did, look at that. The universe is now static again. Well, about this time, there was another young man named Edwin Hubble who was doing research not too far from here at Mount Wilson, and he was looking through his telescope, and what he saw would alter the face of science as we know it. He observed while looking into these distant galaxies 
what is known as a redshift. A redshift. What the redshift is, is the phenomena that happens when light is going away from you. It changes the dynamic of the wave and gives you a red shift. He could quite literally see that the universe was expanding. The heavens were declaring the glory of God. And surprise, surprise, what we found is what we would expect to find if Genesis 1 were true. And so here's this picture. Einstein actually came out and looked through Hubble's telescope. This is an amazing media op. We have Hubble there with his pipe and Einstein just doing his thing. And uh, Einstein went on to say that the cosmological constant was the biggest blunder of his life. The heavens declared the glory of God, and it revealed an expanding universe. But this isn't the only time that the heavens revealed something that was expanding. In our text today, a star revealed not just an expanding universe, but an expanding kingdom. Not just an expanding universe, but an expanding kingdom. All throughout the Old Testament, the people of God had been given a promise that God was going to restore what Adam broke. That he was going to reestablish a kingdom that would have no end for his people, the people of Israel. This is a thread that goes all throughout the Old Testament. Its, its promise is echoing through all of the pages of the scriptures. Here's a few. The prophet Daniel wrote, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. You don't get more emphatic than that in the Hebrew when you say it three times. Zephaniah had prophesied that land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. There they will find pasture. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. And the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, Keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, this promise of an everlasting kingdom. Even after the resurrection of Christ himself, his disciples still had this expectation. Acts 1.6, they asked him, Lord, will you look at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? This was the great hope of Israel, a restored kingdom. But for over 400 years, God had remained silent. We call this the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. There had been no promises. There had been no prophets. God had remained silent. And it's into this silence today that God speaks once again using the heavens as his mouthpiece. And what he says is unbelievable. Now we need to realize Matthew was a Jew writing to a Jewish audience. And when we realize this, we see just how explosive what he said today is. Our text again, starting from verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem 
saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Wise men from the east, what business do they have seeking the salvation that belongs only to Israel? These are pagans from over 800 miles away. And this is amazing, friend. This is the first echo of your salvation if you are not Jewish. This is unbelievable. The star was revealing that the kingdom is expanding in the same way that Hubble looked up and saw the expansion of the universe. So the wise men looked up and saw the expansion of the kingdom that now included them. And this is what we realize. God is now breaking into history and his gravity is now pulling all peoples to himself. This is the good news of the gospel. Salvation is not just for Israel, but it is for all people who would come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation 7, which is the last book of the Bible. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is nothing more significant to your existence than what this star represents. God is welcoming all people. I hope from now on, whenever you see a star, you realize this is the first symbol of your very salvation. In the news recently, we've been watching an interesting situation play out with the current Syrian refugee crisis. There has been a civil war waging there for close to four years. 250,000 Syrians have been killed. And now there's about 4 million who are seeking refuge from their war-torn country. And initially, some flooded into Europe in the past months. There have been those who have been trying to make their way into America. And I would never use the pulpit to make a political point, and I promise I'm not going to start today. Um, uh, The truth is, I, I don't know what the answer is. It's very complicated. But here's one thing I know for sure, friends. As Christians, the tenor of our voice within these conversations should be vastly different than the world's. And here's why. Every one of us was a refugee. Every one of us was a spiritual refugee. We were souls who had no hope, no home, until the star broke through and realized and proclaimed that God's arm was now extending to all people's. What if this broke over us as we're having these difficult conversations, as we realize at the end of Matthew, the commission was to go and make disciples of all nations, and now the nations are in a very real way coming to us, people who have never heard the gospel. David Crabb, a a writer, um, said this in an article speaking to Christians as to how we can carefully think through some of these more challenging issues. He said, 
What if while America was asking questions about safety and risk management, Christians were asking, what is God doing? What if through the senseless evil of civil war, God was bringing unreached people groups to our cities? What if through great tragedy, God was bringing about the triumph of the gospel? Once we realize that we're all spiritual refugees, it changes the way we see everything. Last week at our congregational meeting, we talked a bit more about our time at Door of Hope last Saturday where we served a meal and how we need more people in the coming year to to sign up for our missions and mercies team and so that we can start serving the city more. But what propels us to do this is not because, well, we're a church, so we should probably fill up our calendar. That, that, that's not what propels us. What propels us is the reality that God has saved us and has called us to be ministers of reconciliation who pronounce the good news for spiritual refugees. That there is now a home in the kingdom for anyone who would come to faith through Jesus Christ. Last week I was reading scripture with our brother Josh like I do every week. He's the one who labors back there to make sure I'm on point with my slides. And we were reading through, we're reading through Luke right now, and we were in the one text where Jesus talks about um, the birds of the air and how God cares for them, and then says, well, we're so much more valuable than the birds, so what does that tell us about God's care for us? And I asked him what this has looked like in his life. And without skipping a beat, he had a response, and, and he said, when you grow up in the, in the foster system like, like he has, and you go from house to house, it's very easily to feel like you've been forgotten. Like in a very real way, you don't have a home. But when he came to prison, he, he met Jesus here, uh, and he met all of us here. And so now he feels like he has a family. And the reason he feels that way is because he does have a family. We're all family here. We're all family in Christ. This is why we exist. We are a home for spiritual refugees. We have been given the words of the Lord to proclaim good news to people who felt like they had no home. So we come here to be filled up with this grace, and then we are sent to start dispensing this into the lives of others. It's an amazing thing. This is what Matthew is showing us here. Through these unexpected visitors, these wise men from the East, who are now seeking the king of the Jews, it is a bizarre reality. Well, I'm going to take a few minutes to to zoom in on these wise men, these characters that you've probably sung about since you were able to sing, and hopefully pour some deeper meaning into their presence here at at the very fulcrum of history. And so uh, going forward in every Advent season, when you see their arrival, it'll have a, a much deeper meaning as to what God is doing here. So let's take some time to look at these mysterious magi. So who are these men? Well, To begin with, the word that is translated wise men is actually the Greek word magi. Now, we don't have a direct English translation for this word, but it is where we get our word uh, magic. Now, the reality is uh, we've learned most of our theology on the wise men um, from Hallmark and not from the scriptures or even from um, ancient Near East history. For instance, if you're like me, you grew up believing that there was definitely three 
that they definitely rode camels, and that we even knew their name. My, my dad was Balthazar in one of the plays. I love you, Dad. I know you're going to listen to this. That's not a bad thing, and I thank God for how you brought me up. Um, <laughs> if you go to Germany, you can go to the Cologne Cathedral and look at what is called the Shrine of the Three Kings, which happens to have the very bones of these three wise men. You want to know what we know about these specific wise men? Here it is. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That's the extent of what we know about these specific wise men. We don't know how many there were. We, we, people have assumed three because there's three gifts, but we have no idea. Apparently, when they arrived, Herod took notice, so there's probably a good amount. And they most definitely probably were not at the manger scene. So if you want to make your nativity a little bit more accurate, you can, you can put the wise men on the windowsill away <laughs> and then just move them from sill to sill throughout Advent. But though the text doesn't tell us more specifics about these wise men, it doesn't mean that we don't know anything about wise men. There's actually a rich history surrounding um, some of these things. Here's a few things that we know about wise men in general, which assuredly would apply to these guys. One, we know the Magi were ancient priestly castes within the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian empires. You think something along the lines of Gandalf the Grey. Um, they, they were the first astronomers. Okay, so they would search the skies, but since they were priests, they would give religious significance and superstitions to the patterns that they observed. This is where we get astrology from the wise men. They were highly influential, politically speaking. History records that not a single Persian was ever crowned king without the Magi giving their support. Three things that we know from history, but there is actually one more thing that we know. Earlier I said in the text it said nothing else about these wise men. That's that's actually not true. One other thing we know is that somehow they knew the scriptures. It's a crazy thought that somehow they either knew the scriptures or they, they knew about the promise of a coming king. Now how in the world did the Magi know that a king of the Jews was coming, why would they have traveled 800 miles not just to see this king, but to worship him? It's a strange thing. Well, it just so happens that there is a thread here that goes all the way back to the book of Daniel, where wise men actually appear in the book of Daniel. And there's a thread there that if we pull on that thread, it will fill our story this morning with incredible uh, insights. And I hope it it will help you see the cohesiveness of the book that God wrote. A lot of people don't have any idea what to do with the Old Testament. The truth is, this is one grand story of redemptive history. And so as we go into the book of Daniel for a few moments, I hope it helps you see the cohesive nature of God's story of redemption and how even in Daniel, God was making provision for you here this morning. So we don't have time to go into the whole history of Daniel, but I'll give you a quick bit of context. For about 70 years, the Jews, God's people, were in captivity in Babylon. Daniel was a young man who had remained faithful to God, and God ended up using him in incredible ways that would quite literally alter the course of history and the course of your salvation. If you haven't read the book of Daniel, I encourage you to. You could probably do it in 30 minutes. But I'm going to jump into chapter 2 today and show you how this thread goes from Matthew 
back to Daniel, I believe. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. They replied, The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. That is the Magi. But Daniel went and said thus to them, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king. I'll show the king the interpretation. And Daniel goes on to interpret the dream for the king. And we pick up in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now catch this. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Isn't that incredible? Imagine this. Daniel risked his life to save the wise men because of his faith in Yahweh. Do you think this would have made an impression on the wise men? Doubly so. First, the guys saved their lives. Second, they saw with their eyes the power of Yahweh to do what they could not do. And in God's providence, he made Daniel prefect over them. Do you think Daniel would have taken this time to teach them the scriptures a little bit? Do you think they would have been interested in who this God was? Absolutely. Daniel was was prefect over them. It's unbelievable. So almost certainly so. Here the wise men are hearing the stories of Scripture. They had seen the power of the God of the Jews and had heard the story of this coming king. And for the next hundred years, no doubt, this story would have been passed on. And this fascination would have continued to germinate. So it's no wonder they were seeking for a sign. And God chose as this moment, the moment to reappear, of them to reappear as some of the first fruits for us Gentiles. It's amazing. The star had revealed an expanding kingdom. Now we're going to spend the remainder of our time looking at this. The responses to the eternal king. Verses 3 through 8 of our text. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Babylon saying, Go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. The first response is that of King Herod, the current king of the Jews. And while the revelation of this eternal king who the Jews were waiting for should have come as gospel to Herod, it should have come as good news to Herod, it didn't. Why didn't it? Well, here's why. Because Herod saw this king as a threat. So he responded with fear from a threatened throne. This was not good news to Herod because he was the king. And fear is always the response when we perceive a threat to our throne. See, Herod was living under the delusion of autonomy, the delusion of power. He was, in fact, a very powerful force in that time. But rather than seeing his power as something given by God that he should steward for the good of his people, he thought, like our first parents thought, that he was like God, that he was God. See, sin at its roots is insanity. Herod really thought that he could stay the hand of the Almighty by killing the Messiah. Sin is insanity. You've heard it said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is absolute power corrupting absolutely. This was not gospel to Herod because he was king. He was like God. And so he must put an end to this threat to his throne. Now it's easy to read the story and just quickly identify Herod as the bad guy. And, And to be sure, Herod was a bad guy. But friends, that doesn't mean that we're the good guys. If we're all honest, we have little Herods in the thrones of our heart. And we all, from time to time, see the pronouncement that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all of our lives as uncomfortable, if not offensive. So we have to ask ourselves, which of my thrones is Jesus threatening? Where am I being like Herod? Where I will give lip service to, yes, bring him to me so that I may worship him, but I'm not going to let him be Lord over every aspect of our lives. We all have it, friends. And the gospel gives us the freedom to say it's true. Maybe it's an addiction that you, you know you need help with, and you time and time again say, I can, I can tough it out by myself, and you know that's not true, and you know you need to ask for help. Maybe it's a broken relationship that you know you need to take a step towards reconciling. But you've blocked out the words of Christ, which says, before you even come to church, make sure if anybody has something against you that you have dealt with it. Maybe Jesus needs to become Lord over your finances. You've been buried in debt and you don't know how to get out of it. Come to uh, FPU next year. Let's work on this together. Once again, which of my thrones is Jesus threatening? What throne in my heart do I need Jesus to smash? Where has fear kept all of us from surrendering wholly to the Lordship of Christ? The first response 
was fear from a threatened throne. But we find a vastly different response in these bizarre men from the east. Verses 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh, very costly gifts. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the response we see here, not fear, but joy at the discovery of a Savior. The wise men didn't perceive Jesus as a threat. Why? Well, it's because they knew that they weren't Lord. They knew that they weren't king. How do we know this? They had come to worship. Verse 3, where is he? For we have come to worship him. In verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. This is an insight into one of the greatest uh, mysteries in all of life. This is the source of joy. Forgetting ourselves so that we are freed up to worship. This is what caused the wise men to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Them decreasing so that Christ could increase. Their joy wasn't found in finishing a journey of self-discovery. Their journey wasn't found in finding the perfect job or the perfect spouse. This is not what leads to joy. Because the human heart was created to search for joy, but not in anything that was created. Because what was created can't bear the weight of the human soul. If you are looking to anything that has been created to be your ultimate source of satisfaction, you will live the rest of your life enslaved because it will let you down. True and abiding joy is not found in anything that is created. Your soul is far too weighty, far too amazing to be ultimately satisfied in something that has been created. Joy is found in realizing you were created to be in relationship with your creator. And he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's good news, friends. Not just that Jesus Christ came to us, but he opens his arms to us. This is the gospel. And this passage teaches us one more hugely important thing. And that's this. You don't need to choose between pursuing God and pursuing joy. Because those things are mutually inclusive. In pursuing joy, you must pursue God. In pursuing God, you are inevitably pursuing joy because this is where joy is found. And here's some more good news. God is more for your joy than you are. That's what makes sin so tragic. It's not wrong to be thirsty. It's sad when you drink brackish water. Sin can't satisfy That's why the law is good if used lawfully, because it shows us the character of God. God 
is for our joy. More than we are, friends. That's why repentance is really such a sweet word. It's turning from the trash heap that you've sought a meal in and listen to a voice from a king in a palace encouraging you to come to his banquet and feast. This is the essence of the gospel and the essence of repentance. The good news of the gospel is that this eternal king has come, not just as king, but as our savior. He has made a spiritual home for all of us spiritual refugees. And he has beckoned us to pronounce this good news to everyone we come in contact with. This is good news, friend. It was good news for Josh. It's good news for us. It's good news for everybody that we come into contact with. I'm going to close with these words from Larry Crabb. He says it this way. Brokenness is realizing Jesus is all we have. Hope is realizing he is all we need. And joy is realizing He is all we want. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you to go to work now, Lord. Father, we repent of making you an intellectual equation that needs to be solved. And we ask that you would smash the dam between head and hearts and allow this truth to rush into our hearts and change everything. We can't do this. It's your scriptures who say these are spiritually discerned. So come, Holy Spirit. Testify that we are the children of God. Give us joy, Lord. Joy that transcends all of our circumstances. Joy that we know can only come from you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that your love is a kind of love that pursues. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us knowing the worst possible things about us. And so we cannot disillusion you because you already know and you already said yes to us in knowing that. Father, I ask if there's somebody here this morning who has never received the joy that is found in submission to Christ, the joy that is found at coming back home to their Creator, may today be the day that that happens for your glory, for our joy. In Christ's name, amen.